There we go. <laughs> okay, we are in the Gospel of John um, chapter 2. And what I like to do is always give you kind of a little um, review or backstory, I call it. So John is the, one of four books that tells the life story of Jesus. He was probably the closest one to Jesus. He writes his gospel last. 93% of what he writes is not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, the other three gospels. He's writing about things he remembers, especially ones that they, the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't mention. Um, so in the opening 18 verses of chapter one, we find out that there's this character named the word who's with God and he is God and that he created everything that is. And down in verse 14, we find out that the word became flesh, became a human being. And we find out that the word, the logos, the reason for everything, the creator and sustainer of the universe is Jesus Christ. So, um, and he became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. And then starting in verse 19, for the whole rest of the book, he's going to prove it. John's going to prove it by telling what he remembers about testimony from people. And he starts with John the Baptist, and he goes on through Andrew, Peter, John, Philip, and Nathaniel. That's the five apostles we have so far. And they uh, all testified in their own way about Christ being the Messiah, the one spoken of in the Old Testament who fulfills prophecy, uh, the Son of God, the King of Israel, and what have you. And now in chapter 2, John is going to continue proving who Jesus is. That's the main thrust of uh, the Gospel of John and that we would believe. But he's going to do it not so much from testimony. He's going to do it by showing you here's what he did. Chapter 2 starts out with a wedding where he's invited, and so are all the apostles, uh, the five apostles at least, and Mary, his mother's there. You remember the story last week? And they run out of wine, which is a total social faux pas that is a way of saying that the celebration is over. A wedding would last at least three days, often a week long. And so he turns about 150 gallons of water into wine. It's a creation miracle where he changes what one thing is to something else. Pretty amazing. Um, down in verse 11, it says his disciples believed. But what's implied there is a lot of other people didn't. They may not have known what he did or, or that it was him that did it. But in any case, it was the first of his miraculous signs in verse 11, he says, um, and he performed it at Cana in Galilee, and he thus revealed his, that's Jesus's, glory. And his disciples put their faith in him. They believed in him. Now we're down to verse 12. We started into this verse, but didn't get very uh, far. Um, those of you that are here, so I know you're awake, say amen. amen. Pretty good. It wasn't great, but it was good. Uh, those of you on Zoom, say amen. I can't hear you, but just wave and I'll know that you're okay. Good. Verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum, which becomes the city that is his headquarters for his ministry, with his mother and brothers and disciples. They stayed there for a few days. That's it. Nothing mentioned about Mary, nothing about the his brothers. He's got four brothers and some sisters. That's just in there as a transitional verse. Or is it? I'll show you why I think it's there for another reason in a second. There they stayed for a few days. Verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
every able-bodied Jew, male Jew, was expected to attend certain festivals, one of which was Passover. Passover was a Jewish festival that celebrated when the Jews were captives, slaves in Egypt. Through a series of signs, God shows Pharaoh, Moses telling, being the intermediary, uh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, amazing, miraculous signs occur. Finally, the 10th and final sign, because Pharaoh will not listen, he hardens his heart, is the killing of the firstborn in every household uh, as a way to wake up the Egyptians and say, let the Jews go. But to protect the Jews, God tells Moses, tell all the Jews, the, Jews, the head of each household, sacrifice a lamb without blemish, meaning a, a good quality lamb, and um, put the blood over the doorposts of your house. When the angel of death comes, he'll pass over your house. That's what they're celebrating. And the others will have death of the firstborn, all because they wouldn't let you people go, but you people will be safe. That's what they're celebrating. Jesus is an able-bodied Jew. He completely fulfills the law, and to do so, he's got to go to this festival, along with everybody, every other Jew. So, it's almost time for the Jewish festival. Jesus heads up a little early to Jerusalem, verse 13. This is what's typically called the cleansing of the temple. Most of you know what that is, right? What's surprising is the other three gospels talk about a cleansing of the temple. So you say, well, this is it, and it's not. There's enough details that are different and the timing is totally different. This is at the very start of his ministry in John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's right at the end of his ministry. He's going to get arrested shortly after he does this. So almost every scholar I could read said there's two cleansings of the temple, an early one and a late one. So verse 14, why would he want to cleanse the temple? And what do you mean by that? Well, let's do, give you a little background. We did this last week a little bit. Verse 14, in the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. You say, what's so wrong with that? And the answer is everything. The, the temple, if you can picture it being this building, uh, kind of bad analogy, but the outer court or the court of the Gentiles would be out there. If you're a Gentile, which means a non-Jew, that's where you could go but no further until you became a Jew. But it was open to Gentiles, people that were of other faiths or no faith, but they realized, I want to come check out this God and worship him. They could worship out there. They could pray out there. That's what that area was supposed to be, a very quiet, reverent, sacred area where they could worship God, non-Jews. Okay, what's going on here? Why all the animals? Why are people selling stuff? We said last week, the able-bodied head of the family had to bring a lamb for sacrifice. You don't bring the one with one eye and two legs. You bring the best one you have, a lamb without blemish, because the lamb is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. So to commemorate Passover, you're supposed to bring a lamb, and people did who lived nearby. But if you traveled 800 miles on foot or, you know, horseback, if you were wealthy, whatever, donkey, pretty tough to bring a lamb. Either way, if you brought a lamb, the, the religious leaders had a habit of saying, uh, good try, but no, 
that lamb isn't, doesn't qualify. It's not good enough. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We've got some over here for 1995 that I can set you up with a really nice 2021 model with the CD player. Just kidding. But my point is they were ripping people off. Okay. Especially if you came a long way, you didn't bring a lamb. You counted on them to provide one and you would pay through the nose, like exorbitant, way overpriced prices. Can't afford a lamb. We've got turtle doves. You can sacrifice all kinds of animals there and they're selling them. This is all going on where this is supposed to be the court of the Gentiles, a place of prayer, worship, introspection, all of the above confession. Okay. So the place smells. You've been around a lot of animals. Yeah. It smells. It's loud, noisy, confusing. They're ripping them off. Okay. But there's another problem, money. You had to pay a temple tax and they only took a certain a currency. Um, I think it's Tyrian, T-Y-R-I-A-N coins because of the purity of the silver. So if you came with Roman money, Greek money, Syrian money, whatever, you had to go exchange your money for their money. And the exchange rates were very unfair and they were ripping people off again because the Pharisees and the Sadducees that ran the temple, mostly the Sadducees, had figured out you could make a ton of money on these people. Jerusalem was normally two or 300,000 people. Passover, one to two million people because they're coming from all over. They have to. So that's what's going to upset Jesus. As you watch the life of Jesus, you will see him hang out with all kinds of sinners and speak to them. The thing that makes him the angriest is religious hypocrisy, being a hypocrite religiously. The word hypocrite it, uh, comes from a term that meant an actor, somebody that wears a mask, appears to be one thing, but underneath there's something else. Some of you are wishing I had a mask on. All right. Um, so they're selling cattle, sheep, doves, others sitting at tables, exchanging money. This is not what the temple is supposed to be. Verse 15. So he, that's Jesus, made a whip out of cords, which means ropes, basically, and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn, notice what he calls it, the temple, my father's house into a market. In a parallel gospel, he calls it at the end of his ministry, a den of thieves. How dare you do it? Okay, um, let's go back to verse 15. So hanging around all those animals, there's all kinds of ropes. He just gets a bunch of ropes together, braids them together or something, and just makes a whip. I want you to notice that he cleanses the temple. What do you mean? I mean, the other disciples, there are at least five now, doesn't say they help him. They're probably watching with open mouths going, what is he doing? Right? This is the sacred temple. Who does he think he is? So I want you to notice the word all in verse 15. He drove all from the temple area. That means all the animals. It means all the people. And there would be thousands of people there. Okay. There's no record of anybody getting injured or anything. But on the other hand, this is not meek and mild and sweet, soft-spoken Jesus who loves everybody. 
He does love everybody, but he loves God more. And God cares about his temple because it's his house, not theirs. They're using it to make money. Okay, so remember the changing of the water into wine I mentioned earlier? John calls that in verse 11, do you see it? The first of his miraculous signs. Now, there may have been other miracles that were done between these two incidents, but I'm going to explain to you that the cleansing of the temple is an even more amazing miracle. And I'll tell you why. Next to the temple was basically the, I, the name escapes me, but is a palace where the local Roman governor lives, okay, or can stay during Passover because a lot of people, we want to protect people from a riot. He's there with all kinds of Roman soldiers. We got the picture? Also, the temple had their own temple police. Also, there are a bunch of religious leaders in robes, Pharisees, Sadducees. These are grown men. So we've got temple police. We've got Roman soldiers. We've got all the people that are there, okay? What's your point, Joe, and what's the miracle? Nobody stops him. One guy. Well, he's got a machine gun. No, he's got a, a rope, some ropes put together, right? He's unarmed, basically. All it would take is one big burly guy like Randy there in the white shirt um, to grab him and say, hey, buddy, what do you think you're doing? Right? And a few others would come up, use the ropes to tie him up. You're under arrest. The Romans don't come. The temple police don't do anything. Nobody stops him. It's a miracle. Probably because, not because they didn't see him, that would be impossible, but because of the authority with which he spoke and dealt with the temple. Believe me, if anybody else got out of line in that area or anywhere else on the temple grounds, they wouldn't get far. Jesus does this with such authority. And I don't think he said verse 16 in a quiet voice. Do you? Please, could you get these out of here, folks? Please. I think he, he's on a rampage of, but listen, don't, don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, he lost his temper. That's a sin. Righteous anger, right? This is his father's house. And in a sense, if it's his father's house, guess what? It's his house. How dare you? So he drives them out completely, all of them. Tables are overturned, coins go flying, there's birds flying, cages broke open, animals are jumping all over the place. Dave, did you have a comment? Is there, is there an assumption that he's angry? Is there what? Is there an assumption that he's angry? I think he is angry. Uh, do you think he's not angry? Absolutely. I'm not saying it's a sin. I think it's righteous anger, but I do think he's angry. Um, get these out of here, out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Um, he certainly has zeal. The next verse tells us that, right? Um, but however he did it, he, it's an absolute miracle that nobody stops him. In the Old Testament, in more than one place, God told the prophets to write that zeal for my father's house will consume me, will eat me up, is literally how it reads. In other words, 
the, the fact that he's this angry and takes action doesn't just sit there fuming saying, oh, they shouldn't be doing this, you guys. He takes action. In the end of his ministry, it's what gets him arrested. Keep in mind, the people that are in control of the temple are religious leaders who've gone to the proper schools to learn Hebrew and the Old Testament, and in many cases memorized it. They have authority over the temple, mostly the Sadducees, Pharisees. We'll talk about that another time. So um, he's commanding, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market or a bazaar? Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And it did. Um, zeal means, it's another way of saying he was extremely jealous for his father's house in a good way that they not use it for something irreverent. As I said, he, he always has holy anger toward any religious hypocrisy. And this whole operation has become a huge moneymaker for the Jews. Um, let's see. The Old Testament also predicted that the Messiah, when he shows up, would purify the Levites, the priestly tribe. That's Malachi 3 and Zechariah 14. Uh, let's see. We already talked about the fact that it's a, a miracle. It's the opposite of a miracle that happens shortly after this back in Galilee. You may remember from the other Gospels that he preaches, I, th I think it's around Luke 4 um, or so, he preaches a sermon in the local synagogue where he reads part of Isaiah and then he looks up and says, this has been fulfilled today and you're hearing. And he walks out and he's surrounded by people and they want to throw him off a cliff and kill him. Why didn't they? Because he's Christ. He, it says he walks right through their midst and just goes on his way and they don't do it. It's kind of the opposite. He's in the middle. They want to kill him. He's in the middle this time, and he wants to get them out of there. Kind of similar, but different. Um, let's see, I'm looking at notes. Um, yeah, the merchants would certainly want to stop him, besides all the other people I mentioned, the temple police and what have you. So the first miracle is a miracle of conversion, water into wine. Conversion means change. We were all changed when we came to believe. The second miracle is a miracle of cleansing. Listen, that's the way it happened in your life, whether you know it or not. In all Christians, first there's conversion, then the cleansing begins. Not the other way around. He doesn't draw you to himself, get you all cleaned up, get rid of those drugs, that alcohol, that lust, that greed, that selfishness, that anger, that whatever your sin brand is. He doesn't clean you out of that and then convert you. He converts you first. The analogy has been given that when he converts you, when you receive him as your savior, you open the door to your house, the house being a symbol of your life, right? And you let him in. And he starts to go to some other doors and you go, no, 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 just stay in the front room here with me. And he says, okay. And he sits next to the light switch, which is actually a dimmer. You ever have a dimmer in your house? And you think the house is pretty clean and he's sitting there on your couch next to the, the dimmer and he turns the dimmer up a little and you suddenly see in your house, wow, some of the furniture's ripped and dirty and that chair's upside down. And I didn't even notice that before. I want you to notice he doesn't just flip on the floodlights and blow your mind with how much sin you have. It would be overwhelming. 
So you straighten the furniture and you go, whew, glad that's over. A couple of days go by and he turns the dimmer up a little more and you go, look at the dust in here. So you start dusting. Do you mean literally dust? No, I mean your language, your thought life, your the way you treat people, your selfishness, your lust, your whatever the sin is, he's showing you a little at a time. First conversion, then cleansing. Eventually though, he says, what's in that room? And you go, oh no, that's, that's my private room, uh, it's locked. Eventually he's wanna, gonna wanna get in there, isn't he? And clean your whole house up. Little at a time, thank God, little at a time, he keeps turning up the dimmer, unlocking doors, and you end up saying, you've done such a good job with these rooms. How can I keep this door locked? Go for it. Clean me up. Show me, Lord, if there's any unclean way in me, like the Old Testament says. Okay, so he does this cleansing of the temple. It's his house. Um, Psalm 69.9 reads, zeal for your house has eaten me up or consumed me. Okay, But what's interesting is right before that, and right after that, okay? Let me read the verse in context. Psalm 69, verses eight and nine. And, and remember what I said about, there was that casual meeting, uh, little mention, I mean, of his brothers, remember? And his mom, remember that? We just mentioned it. Listen, Psalm 69, um, starting in verse eight. I have become a stranger to my brothers. Have they already started to not believe in him? In John 7, we find out the brothers, his brothers, don't believe in him. Um, Jude, James, um, Joses, J-O-S-E-S, -E and there's one more, I always forget the name. But anyway, they don't believe in him. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Is that in there about the family as a hint that there's already some tension between the brothers did you have an older brother like i did was he perfect <laughs> and if he was would you resent him i think i would straight a's again jesus way to go what's wrong with you joe right um in any case an alien to my mother's children because zeal for your house has eaten me up listen to this the reproach reproaches of those who reproach you god have fallen on me. The truth is the Jews are trying to keep the law and going through the motions, but they actually hate God. The reproaches against God are falling on Christ, but Christ is sticking up properly for the, the Father's kingdom. We won't go to John 7 now. So you may be sitting here in 2021 saying, yeah, that's, that's great, but there's no temple today. So what does this have to do with me? Can we move on? Oh, no, there's a temple. The temple, listen, what was the temple? It's a place where people would come to meet God. It's a place where people would pray. It's a place where people could um, sacrifice and obtain forgiveness or at least a covering for their sin. A place where there could be worship of God, right? The intersection, if you will, between the vertical God and the horizontal human beings. You with me so far? Well, you say, where's the temple today? He's in heaven. Oh, it's a person? Yes, it's Christ, according to the book of Ephesians. Christ is our temple, the meeting place. We get the sacrifice for sin there. We pray to him in his name. I could go on and on. 
oh, that's nice, you say, but that's still out there and I'll see him someday. Listen, Corinthians, Paul writing, don't you know that your body, listen, is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So where's the temple now? Do you know why we don't have to go as Christians to Bethlehem or Jerusalem or New York or Course Gold or wherever once a year? Because you walk around with the temple of God and you are as close to God at a 7-Eleven in Bakersfield as you are if you go to Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, right? Awesome. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Your body is the temple. So the cleansing, which always occurs, it starts with the church, with the people of God, right? Might be occurring in your life and mine. And rather than turn the dimmer down and tell Jesus, don't look, we ought to be praying, show me what you want to change in me. Because he never makes a change where he doesn't replace what he took with something better or everything he does is always for our good. So the temple that he's cleansing is real in Jerusalem, but the temple you walk around with might need cleansing. And I don't mean on the outside as much as I mean on the inside, what you think, say, and do. Now that I've made you feel guilty, let's move on. Um, so we have to also guard our churches against this kind of hypocrisy and stuff, because there's churches that are totally into the big money thing. Certainly the big, big, big churches that are on Christian TV, not all of them, but a lot of them have the whole, if you give $1,000, the Lord will give you 10,000, right? Which by the way, makes no sense, right? Because if I was the pastor and I said that, I would hope somebody would say to me, if that really worked, why don't you just give all your money, Joe, and he'll give you a thousand times as much and then do it again and again and again. You'll have so much money, you'll be giving it away. A give to get scheme, not right. Okay, so the Pharisees just say, well, that was weird. Just broke up our whole little enterprise there and our flea market is done. So they went home and no, they want to know who are you? Who do you think you are? Look at verse 18. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us, the Pharisees, to prove your authority to do this? Okay, may I say in their defense, they're half right. They're wrong about asking for a sign because a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. What's a sign? A miracle. You know what they're saying? Do a miracle so you can show us your authority to do what you just did. This also is odd to me. Why don't they just arrest him? Are they afraid of him? Does he speak with such authority and power? Remember, God created the world with his words, right? Let there be light. Let there be stars and the, and, and the moon and the planets. And I think there's a sense of um, could you show us a sign? They're a little put. Uh, they're a little afraid of him. So, but they're not all wrong. To to ask for a sign is wrong. But to ask for authority isn't wrong. They've been given the task of maintaining this place of God's worship. You notice there's no ad admittance of well, you know what? Come to think of it, we were making a couple hundred grand every hour and splitting the money and. Uh, you're right, that probably wasn't, we should have done it way out there beyond the court of the Gentiles. There's none of that, right? But they want to know what authority do you have? And that's okay. 
okay? And whoever your God is, if you're not a Christian and you believe in Allah or you believe in Buddha or Muhammad or whoever you believe in, it's a valid question. What's the authority? All the religious leaders of all the religions of the world are buried somewhere except one, right? There's one empty grave. So they demand, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove you have authority to do this? Remember, he has no schooling in their schools the rabbis went to, and yet he knows the Old Testament better than they did. They do. As a matter of fact, he knew it better when he was 12. Do you remember that? When he goes to the temple and astounds them with his knowledge. Not hard for him. He wrote the Old Testament, right, in a sense. Paul, what were you going to say? Good point. He's saying it's amazing that there's that big of a crowd. They're all angry with them. Maybe there's a few people that think, yeah, somebody should have done this a long time ago. But for the most part, you're right. A large crowd of people are angry. There's no arrest. There's nobody beating them up. There's nobody, no rioting, right? Um, he, he's absolutely in control. So they ask for a sign. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Remember I told you two weeks ago, the whole book of John is this way, double meanings, okay? There's a surface meaning and then there's a deeper spiritual meaning. You with me so far? So he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. Now, there are, there's no way to know this because we don't have video, but you can rent it in heaven when you get there, the DVD, it's free. But I bet, he's, I bet he gestured, destroy this temple, meaning his body, and in three days, I'll raise it again. They're thinking temple, 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 the big temple, the temple in Jerusalem, the Jewish temple destroy this temple, they're hearing everything with fleshly minds instead of spiritual minds. There's no, what do you mean by that? What he means is, and by the way, destroy this temple, the way it's worded in Greek is not a command. He's not saying, go ahead, destroy this temple. Go, it's not an order. It's almost like saying, when you or if you or since you're going to destroy this temple, by the way, he's predicting his death, isn't he? He knows they're the ones that are going to do it. Well, wait, the Romans are the ones that are Christians. Yeah, but the Jews were the ones behind it who made it happen, right? The Romans couldn't have cared less. Some Messiah guy let him go. Since you're going to destroy this temple in three days, I will what? Raise it up. Meaning what? Resurrection. He's saying, and it's kind of surprising, um, we want a sign. He's not saying, get lost. He's saying, I'm going to give you a sign. Won't be for a little while. But when you destroy this temple, three days later, I will raise it up. That's your sign. In a parallel passage in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, he mentions um, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Because just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, sea monster, whatever you want to call it, whale, so the Son of Man, his favorite title for himself, will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And then instead of being spit out like Jonah, he'll rise from the dead. 
It's interesting. I've mentioned this before. We talked about the Trinity in verse uh, chapter one. Remember that? If you still have questions, welcome to the club. If you expect with your puny little mind to understand the infinite God, you're barking up the wrong tree. However, it is interesting that the Bible says that Jesus right here says, destroy this temple and who will raise it up, class? I will raise it up. I think it's chapter 10 where he says, I have authority to lay my own life down and take it up again. So who raised Jesus from the dead? He raised himself. Amen. Let's move on, brother. No, wait. There's verses in the Bible that say God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Then there's a verse in Romans that says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Okay, contradiction. No. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They all three are omniscient, all-knowing. They're uh, omnipresent. They are creator of the world, sustainer, etc. So we won't go through all that now, but he says he'll raise it again in three days. The Jews, clueless Jews here, replied, verse 20, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? Okay. They think you're going to tear down this whole complex, the huge rocks, all the gold, the wood, everything, and you're going to rebuild it, you yourself, one man in three days. Pretty good construction project, right? Completely misunderstood. Went right over their heads, right? By the way, because of this verse, this is one of the verses that make people think for sure, and I'm not positive about this, that the year here is 30 AD. 30, okay? Because he, uh, they, 46 years they've been building it. By the way, it wasn't completely done yet. In fact, it doesn't get done until the 60s of the first century. And almost immediately when it gets done, the Romans come and destroy it in 70 AD. Anyway, um, so you're going to rebuild it in three days. They're kind of like scoffing. They're kind of laughing, kind of ridiculing him. I'm sure the whole place has gone quiet and thousands of people are listening as these Pharisees, religious leaders are ridiculing him. Verse 21, John interjects a little editorial comment. But the temple he had spoken of was his body because he is that meeting place between the vertical God and the horizontal human beings. He is the ultimate Passover sacrifice. He is, read Hebrews, the ultimate high priest. He is the one in whose name we pray. He is the one who gives forgiveness, right? He fulfills all the imagery of a temple, which is why, folks, I just mentioned it. In 70 AD, roughly 40 years later, 40 in the Bible is a number of judgment, 40 days and 40 nights, 400 years wandering in the wilderness. Listen, about 40 years later, God causes the Romans to come in because of a, a, a little bit of a revolution minor though, was going on in Jerusalem. The Romans come, <clears throat> excuse me, and they kill between a half a million and a million Jews. They burn most of the city of Jerusalem. Many Jews flee. Some flee into the temple grounds, figuring we'll be safe there. The Romans are so angered that they go in there and destroy the temple. They burn it. 
And Jesus had predicted, you remember Matthew 24, not one stone will be left upon another, it'll all be torn down. And it was. Why? Because it's obsolete. There's no need for a temple now. Your body is now the temple if you receive Christ. He is our temple. He is our sacrifice. It's no longer needed. Listen, I have good friends who are Jews, many of which are still Jew, Jews, Jewish people. Some have become born-again Christians, Messianic Jews, fulfilled Jews, completed Jews, whatever. Listen, I have nothing against the Jewish people. You heard me pray for the peace of Jerusalem, right? However, as a religion, Judaism, listen, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but without a temple, they haven't had a sacrifice in almost 2,000 years, not even one. They're supposed to do, right? They haven't had a high priest in almost 2,000 years. They don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. It is a religion that, in a sense, has been gutted. It's like a car out in a field with weeds growing through it. There's no engine. There's no transmission. There's no steering wheel. There's no seats. There's only one wheel. There's not much left. Well, the Jews still meet in synagogues but they haven't been practicing their religion. They don't have a high priest. They don't do any sacrifices. Can you imagine what PETA, P-E-T-A, would say if they were sacrificing this many lambs? Anyway, the reason is because he is the fulfillment of everything that was in Judaism, and they missed it because they didn't know their Old Testament. Okay, but the temple he had spoken of was his body, and after three days, that was the sign, right? And did they get it? No. Verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, nope. What does it say? His disciples recalled what he had said. I believe by the Holy Spirit helped them remember every single thing. It says so at the end of the book of John. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled three days later. Pause right there. When you read about the death of Christ and the burial of Christ, it's astounding to me that the apostles, having been told over and over and over, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to get betrayed, they will kill the Son of Man, and on the third day he will rise again. He just said it here. You would expect them to be in the upper room going, one more day, he's coming back, you want to meet me at the grave, we'll have a party. They're not expecting a resurrection. Even Mary Magdalene goes to the grave. She's not expecting a resurrection. She's going there to anoint the body. Remember all that? But he said it over and over. Let's keep rolling. So they recalled what he had said. So should we. How do you do that? Keep reading the Bible. Because when you need the words, if you've been studying it, if you've been trying to remember it, memorize it even, the words will come to you right? When you're tempted, when you're angry, when you're needing to witness to somebody, the words will come to you. But it involves remembering. His disciples recalled what he had said. I'm still in verse 22. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken, that it all kind of blossomed like a flower, and they realized, oh, three days. Oh, wait, I'm sure, I'm sure they were discussing. Remember, there's that verse in Psalms, you won't let your holy one see decay. It's sort of a veiled way of saying there's going to be a resurrection. Oh, wait, I know of a verse in the Psalms which talks about being betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver. Oh, no, that's Zechariah. Yeah, that's right. The Psalms one is the one where he dips his bread. They start remembering all the scriptures and seeing it all 
fits together. Wait, isn't he supposed to be born in Bethlehem? Yeah, that's right. And Jesus was on and on. Okay. So they recalled and they believed what he said. Verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Now, there's a general mention of miracles. Do you know what that means? He's broke up everything out there in the court of the Gentiles, caused a huge ruckus, and he got out of town. No, he didn't. He hung around for the whole week doing miracles. Nobody bothered him. But he's doing miracles of all kinds. Doesn't say what kind. Um, casting demons out of people, healing the sick, raising the dead, could be any of those things, right? All kinds of miracles are occurring. Wait, don't miss the tie-in. What did the apostle, what did the Jewish re, uh, religious leaders ask for? A sign, right? The thing about a sign is a sign is just a sign, right? There's a sign out in front of the church. So if I said, come to the church, you wouldn't go to the sign. <clears throat> You'd go to the church. The, a sign points to something else. Every miracle is not done just for the sake of doing a miracle like a magic show. It's done to point to some aspect of his character and his deity, the fact that he's God. The religious leaders asked for a miraculous sign. I want you to see where we're headed here. After he's raised from the dead, they, re they remember the words and they believe. But while he's in Jerusalem, many people saw the, what? Miraculous signs. So far, so good. Is that bad? No, that's good. And they believed in his name. Oh, that's good. Did they? Well, it says they did. Let's see. Is there such a thing as a said faith as opposed to a real faith? In other words, are there people in church that say, no, yeah, I'm a Christian. And they're really not. God doesn't know them. Absolutely. Okay. So why do you mention that here, Joe? It says they believed in his name. Verse 24, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men, omniscient. I don't mean he knows their names and their backgrounds, but he's got x-ray vision like Superman and can look right into a person's soul and see this guy doesn't believe, hasn't been born again. That's chapter three, by the way. Um, on the other hand, I, he sees right through people and knows everything about them that they are saved, some. He doesn't entrust himself to them. There's a pun here that the English doesn't show you. Um, and it's this. The way verse um, 23 says they saw the miracle, miraculous signs and they believed on him. Literally, verse 24 reads something like, like this, but Jesus would not believe in them. Why? Because he knew all men. You say, boy, that's a broad generalization. All men? We're not all, we're not all the same. We're all very different. Look around the room. Biblically speaking, what do all men have in common? A sin nature. We are, because of Adam and Eve's sin, born in sin. We are born, listen, physically, but we are born spiritually sick. No, not, script, not scripturally. Ephesians 2, 1, we were what? Dead in our trespasses and sins. What all men have in common, apart from a Savior, apart from belief in Christ, is what does he mean he knows all men? 
They're all dead spiritually, right? He did not need man's testimony about man, verse 25, for he knew what was in a man. You say, what, what is it? A sin nature, right? A proclivity toward selfishness, toward greed, toward sin, toward lust, toward all that bad stuff. Okay, just about done with the chapter. I'm probably going to get home and go, ah, I forgot to say those 11 things, but we're going to keep moving. Um, so he doesn't believe in them because he knows what is really in them. Um, turn to, should we do that now? Chapter six. Yeah, turn to chapter six in John. We haven't taken a detour. That'll keep you awake. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. John chapter six. Go there with me now. So he tells them he's the bread of life. They start grumbling uh, about it. I'm skipping down a ton here. Um, look at verse 60. Oh, let's see. Look at verse 66 of John 6. Isn't that interesting? 666. Ooh, come on. John 6, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They had a said faith. They looked like Christians. They acted like Christians. They said Christian. Oh, God bless you, my sister. They were never really changed from the inside out. Okay. A said faith as opposed to a real faith. Go back before that. Look at verse 64. Yet there are some, well, no, 63 is even better. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe for, listen to this, Jesus had known from the beginning which of them would not believe and who would betray him. Mind-blowing. Meaning he hung out with a guy for three years who acted like his pal and he knew all along, the day's coming when you're going to go against me. He acted like the real thing. Um, Look at verse 70. Jesus replied, have I not chosen you the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. Who does he mean? Judas. Unbelievable. Let's take our two-minute break now and stretch our aging bodies. Some of you are aging faster than others. And we'll be back in two minutes. I'm just going to turn my screen off. I'll be right back. Great. We're back. Thank you for uh, hanging with us here. If you remember the parable of the soils, some people call it the parable of the seeds. You remember that? Some of the seeds are cast on different types of soil. Some of them even seem to spring up a little bit of growth, but they quickly wither and die. What's that? Did they lose their salvation? No, they never had it. That's these people. Said faith as opposed to real faith. Listen, what these people have, what did the Pharisees ask for? A sign. We want a miracle. What's the context here? While he was in Jerusalem, verse 23, many people saw the what? Miraculous signs. I'm going to call this sign faith instead of saving faith. What's the difference? I just like to see the miracles. Do another miracle, Jesus. The sign faith person believes as long as he sees signs. As soon as Jesus goes to heaven, there's no more signs. I need more. I need to keep seeing it. 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, Jesus says. Sign faith, listen, never produces real faith apart from a work of God. Anyway, um, Jesus isn't going to entrust himself to them. He knows what's in a man. That's so interesting. If you think that man is, and I used to think this, you heard this before, right? I believe man is basically good. By that, people, look, Judy's shaking her head, no. By that, people mean by that, most people are not axe murderers or, you know, evil dictators or rapists or abusing children. or, And that's probably true. But is that, let's see, there's God ringing the bell that I've said something right for the first time. Most people aren't that bad. True. But in God's eyes, all humanity, the heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sorry. In the Bible, what you read is God does not want to fix people. He wants to change them completely. He wants them to be, I'm introducing chapter three. Can you tell? Born again. You say, I, I've heard about that. I don't know what it is. Well, we're going to find out, hopefully, if the teacher can get his act together here. I'm still looking at um, notes. Um, yeah, we covered all that. Last thing, sign faith. In Matthew 7, talking about judgment day, he says, Jesus says, and I'm going to paraphrase, many will come to me in that day and say, they're coming to Jesus in judgment day. Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and do many miraculous signs? Signs. And Jesus says, and I will say to them, depart from me, get lost, you workers of iniquity, sin. Listen to this, you ready? I never knew you. Wow. There's people that think, it's all about the signs, and I've got the signs. I've got, listen, Satan can do miraculous signs. He does it through the Antichrist at the end of the of human history. Let's move on to chapter three, just to keep you awake. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. That was a little better. Chapter three. <clears throat> okay, this is a great, great chapter. Um, he knows people. He knows what's in people. Watch how he cuts to the chase with the ultimate religious dude, Nicodemus. Okay. Um, let's see. Yeah. The, the only other thing I want you to look for in this chapter is this. Watch how there's two things at work here. And that they seem like they can't be together. Divine sovereignty. God is totally in charge. Salvation is totally a work of God. Got it? Divine sovereignty. Human responsibility. You must believe. Okay? Well, which is it? Both. Verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Okay. So we have, uh, in Judaism as a religion, scribes. Most of the scribes were Pharisees, but separate category. What did they do? Taught the Bible, Old Testament. They would take the book of Isaiah and copy it by hand, one word at a time to make, because there's no Xerox copies, right? No copiers. 
Then there was the Pharisees, okay? The Pharisees are the religious leaders who are very, very conservative. They want to keep every single law to the T, okay? When they're tithing, they give 10% of their money, but they also give 10% of their little mint garden and 10% of they got 11 oranges, 10 oranges, so they gave one orange and they are so legalistic about everything. Then there's the Sadducees, okay? The other wing, they're the liberals, okay? Sadducees don't believe in the whole Old Testament, just the first five books of Moses. They don't believe in angels. This is astounding to me. They don't believe in the supernatural. What? They don't believe in, you ready for this? Afterlife. What's the point of religion if there's no afterlife? Really? Okay, the Sadducees. Okay, then there's, so this guy's a Pharisee, legalist, but he's much more. He is a member of the Sanhedrin. How do you know that? The Jewish ruling council. Sanhedrin was 70 guys, the upper echelon of all the Pharisees and Sadducees. Okay, 70 of them, they're like the Supreme Court of Israel. The, the ruling elders were 70 of them and one other guy, the high priest. Got it? 71 people. This guy is a member of the Sanhedrin. He is a big deal. From traditions we know, Nicodemus was the third richest man in Jerusalem. Power wealth, right? Knowledge. We're going to find out in this scripture, in this passage, he is the teacher of Israel. Wow, there's many teachers. He is the dude. He's the guy everybody go, ask Nicodemus, let's go. We have a little disagreement, Nicodemus, which is it? This or this? The guy knows scripture. He keeps the law to the best of his ability. So what happens? Verse three, <clears throat> He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Signs again, right? It's the big deal to a lot of people. Okay. He comes to Jesus at night. Nick at night, right? You ever heard of that network? Okay. He comes to Jesus at night. Now, it doesn't say this, but most people think he's very well known as a congressman, a senator, a Supreme Court member. He can't be seen with Jesus because most of the Pharisees hate this Jesus guy. He tore up the temple, right? At night, you can have a private meeting with him. Nobody will see me but I do want to interview him and ask him some questions. I've got my theories as Nicodemus of what I think. I want to see if I'm right. So he comes to Jesus at night and here's what he says. He calls him rabbi, which means teacher. That's very generous because Jesus has no, he wasn't been to any university that they go to. Rabbi, notice it says we. We know that you're a teacher come from God. Meaning there's others of us, probably Joseph of Arimathea, but we don't know. We'll get to that later. We know that you're a teacher who has come from God. How do you know that, Nicodemus? For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. I just told you, Antichrist is going to perform miraculous signs. Second Thessalonians 
2002, I want to say. So the signs in and of themselves is not what you build your faith on. You build your faith on the word of God and the changes in your life and in the lives of others. You build your faith on what God says in his word. But he says, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. No one could do these signs if God wasn't with him. Pretty good. Is Jesus a teacher? Yes. Much more though. From God? That's pretty good. But he is God and he didn't say that, did he? He's the son of God. He's always existed, John 1.1. 1, 1. He is a teacher. He did come from God. Pretty good. You're getting like a C plus so far. No one could perform the signs you're doing if God wasn't with him. That's not really true. But he is saying there's power that comes from God and you've got it. Right? Now, verse three. So that's what he said, right? And I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't say. Pretty good, Nick. You got a good idea of who I am and what I am. Okay. Jesus says, verse three, very truly, I tell you, verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I tell you, when you see that in the Bible, when you see those words, you know what that is? That's listen up. This is really, really, really important. That's what it is. In the book of Revelation, it's another saying, which is, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When you see he that has an ear, or verily, verily, it means read it three times, you might have missed something. So he says, truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. What? Last week, I mentioned the word, non or two words, non sequitur to you. Do you remember that? A non sequitur is in the midst of a Paul and I are having a conversation about baseball. Okay. And he likes the Dodgers and I like the Giants. And we're talking baseball and home runs and batting averages. And Ken walks up and here's the conversation. And Ken says, I think Buicks are the best cars. What? Non sequitur, meaning came out of left field, has nothing to do with baseball. Where are you coming from with that? Nicodemus just said, I think you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these miracles unless they came from God. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, you can't see the kingdom unless you're born again. It's a non sequitur. He didn't. Nicodemus, we don't even ever get to hear what his agenda was or what his questions were. Jesus cuts right to the chase. Why? Because he can see through everybody. And he sees right through Nicodemus. Nicodemus represents the ultimate religious person. I keep all the rules. Do you know why I'm keeping them? So God will owe me. I'm earning my salvation. I deserve my salvation. I'm holier than most of you people. That's religion. Jesus sees through all that. He doesn't want to hear all the accolades. You do some amazing signs and we want to know it. Look, no one, including you, Nick, can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again, okay? Nicodemus is expecting no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's a Jew. The Jews believed you were born into salvation. Are you Jewish? Yeah, you're saved. There was a saying that the rabbis had that Abraham stood at the gates of hell making sure that no Jew ever by mistake got sent there because Jews go to heaven automatically. We're Jewish, we're saved. And by the same token, conversely, Gentiles by nature 
are unsaved automatically unless they become Jews. Nicodemus, this is a shocker for him. Nicodemus is saying, truly is expecting, truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he keeps the whole law. To which Nicodemus would say, well, I'm pretty sure I've got that one covered. It's not what he says. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he memorizes the whole Old Testament. And Nicodemus would say, I'm just about there. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So what on earth does born again mean, right? And is this radically new? Do you remember, um, I think it was the 1970s, it might have been the late 60s, some of you aren't old enough to know, when you started hearing born again, right? And I, I was going to Catholic church in those days, considered myself a Christian, and I would hear, did you hear about so-and-so, Steve Murray? No, what, guy at our school? He's a born again. It was like a noun, right? He's a born again. Oh, gee, a Jesus freak, really? Yes, he's a born again. Like it was some weird new thing. I remember later in my Christian life, I read this and went, oh, born again's in the Bible. And I want you to notice it's not optional. Let's look at it again. No one can see the kingdom of heaven. No one unless something happens. And what is it? Born again. Therefore, by implication, if you're not born again, can you ever get to heaven? No. Also by implication, if you are born again, whatever that is, we haven't said it yet. You, you already have eternal life. So it's this born again thing is a pretty big deal. It turns out, right? I never heard it before that wasn't it late sixties, early seventies, born again. He's a born again, right? Um, they used to have those bumper stickers. I found it. You remember that? Some of you are old like me. All right. Truly, truly, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. I've just eliminated you, Nicodemus. Have you been born again? And Nick is going, born what now? Right? So the whole concept is an absolute shock to Nicodemus. We never, he never gets to his agenda. Jesus gets right to the point. This is the legalist of legalists, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Jew of Jews, the religious man. I've told you this before. Every other religion on the face of earth except Christianity is D-O. Do this and you can earn salvation. Do the eightfold path of Buddhism. Do the five pillars of Islam. Do, go ahead, make the sacrifices to the 330 million gods of, of um, Hinduism. Do, go ahead, you're a Jehovah's Witness, knock on doors. That's why they're doing it. Do you know why? They're earning their salvation. So are the Mormons. Christianity is D-O-N-E. Was the end backwards? I think it was. It means done. Jesus fulfilled the law, lived the perfect life you and I were supposed to live, died the horrible death I deserve and you deserve, and offers you his perfect record and heaven and sonship with God if you'll just believe in him. But it sounds like there's something more here, this whole born again thing. So the question is, what's going on here? Nicodemus wants to tweak his faith, right? He wants to ask some questions and fine tune. I'm almost there. I'm like I get 98 out of 100. 
it's an A now. I want to get an A plus. What do I need to do, Jesus, right? Jesus says, I can't fix you. I can't teach you. You got to be born again. Oh, how do I do that? How to be born again by Joe Sherino. There's no such book. Believe it or not, and he was wrong about this, Billy Graham wrote a book called How to Be Born Again. This is not something I'm going to show you that you can give directions for or that you can do. When were you born? You remember that day? No, you don't. Remember what you did? You don't. Remember how you picked the day? You didn't. Remember how you picked your parents? And you didn't. You had nothing to do with it. It just born, right? And you instantly or soon after could see and hear things you couldn't see and hear before. That's a hint. Verse four, Nicodemus, he just heard born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus is an older guy. Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. He's right, right? You're thinking one way. Jesus means born again. How? Spiritually, right? Do I have to go? Oh, reincarnation. Wrong. There's no reincarnation in Christianity. Um, in Hebrews, it says it's appointed unto each man, listen, to live and die once and then you start all over again, then the judgment. We get one lifetime. Some of them are very short, some are long. You can't get, you can't go into your mother's womb a second time, can you? Verse five, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, listen up, this is really important. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're, now he's going to give a synonym for born again, born of water and the spirit. Now, volumes have been written about that phrase. But whatever it is, what he equated earlier as born again, he now calls same thing. Kingdom of God, enter the kingdom of God, see the kingdom of God. You got to be born again was a couple of verses ago, right? This time it's born of water and the spirit. I'll give you the theories, okay? And they're wrong. I'll just tell you. <laughs> Theory number one, born of water. Oh, okay, Born, birth, a, a woman, a mother's nine months pregnant and her water breaks, born of water. That's what it is. If that's what it is, then he's saying, in order to enter the kingdom, you have to exist. You have to have been born. Why would you say that? Everyone's born of water. So why is that a prerequisite for the kingdom when every single human being is born of water, if the water breaking is it? Can I get an amen, ladies, on the water breaking? Okay. Um, theory number two, born of water, baptism, water, born of water. You get dunked under, that's the water, and then there's a spiritual change. Pretty much every commentator I could read said, that ain't it either. And here's why. You know when you get baptized? When you've already become a believer, I might be witnessing to Ty for months and years, and finally he becomes a believer and starts reading the scriptures and praying, and his life starts changing. And I say, you know, they're going to baptize people over here at 
That's after. You don't get baptized and then get saved. You get saved. And then as a sign to others, look, my old self is going below the water. I'm dying to myself. I'm being washed by the water. And I'm being born again, rising to newness of life. Could this be baptism? It could. I couldn't find any people I trusted that said it was. Okay, so what is it, Mr. Smarty Pants? Okay. In a second, you're going to see that, uh, let me see, let me skip down to it. Look at verse 10. Nicodemus just doesn't get it. I'm skipping down. We'll go back to those other verses. You are Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? Okay, what that means is, whatever this born of water and the Spirit is, Jesus expects Nick to know it. Because Nick knows the Old Testament. So it's got to be in there. The water and the Spirit. What's going on here? Before I tell you, may I say, you had no, nothing to do with your birth, right? It happened to you, but you didn't pick December 3rd, 4 p.m. Here I go. Forget it. No, you didn't. Okay. God chose the day, chose the parents, chose the century, chose the city you were going to be born in, chose that you would have blue eyes and brown hair or whatever. Okay. Um, Nicodemus doesn't need to be repaired, reformed, fixed, taught. It's more basic. He's got to have a life from God. Okay, so the question is, is this in the Old Testament? And the answer is yes. Uh, in a lot of places, actually. But the main one is Ezekiel. And, you, and the, the teacher is looking it up now in his 900 pages of notes here. Let's see, that's verse five. Okay, Ezekiel 36. Let's turn there. I know you go, I don't even know where Ezekiel is. I hear you, me either. Old Testament, so take a left. It's a big, huge book. So when you start thumbing through pages, go take a left. If you remember, we studied Daniel. Take a left at Daniel and you'll get there. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 36. We're not gonna be here long. Uh, verse 25, Ezekiel 36, 25. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. I, this is God talking. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols sin. I will give you a new heart and put a new what? Spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Okay, go back to the 25 again. May I read it again and accent words to make the meaning clearer? Okay, because you're thinking, I'm a Christian, that happened to me. I did it. No, you didn't. Watch. Verse 25, I, this is God talking, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. How did you get saved? God did it. 
right? You're drowning in the, you go swimming across Bass Lake and you get a cramp and you're drowning in the middle of Bass Lake. And Chris here in the second row swims out there and saves you. Okay. And drags you back to shore and you're kicking and screaming, making it harder on him. And he drags you all the way back there. You can't swim. You were fooling yourself. He saves you and you get to the shore and you go, well, I helped. I mean, I was kicking. Really? Salvation is a work of God from the beginning to the end. We're not gonna, we're not gonna have time to do it this week. Next week, we're gonna go to Romans and I'm gonna show you that in spades in chapter eight, because he chose you, he foreknew you, he called you, he, he did it all, okay? And you're the guy in Bass Lake that claimed, well, I helped. Sovereign God electing and saving. Okay, go back to uh, the gospel of John, if you will. Uh, and chapter three, you're saying, boy, you move slowly. No kidding. Um, so let's see. Uh, I believe that what's going on in verse five is you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born of water, that God washes you and of spirit makes you spiritually alive where you're born Again, nothing looks different. You're still alive physically, but suddenly you are spiritually alive. Sometimes I give this analogy. Once you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you can understand the word of God. You can hear things, and I don't mean voices from heaven, although that may happen. I'm not saying it can't, but it's not normative but you understand spiritual things. The Holy Spirit is a louder conscience. The Holy Spirit helps you understand the word of God. Okay, this is my analogy. And when I say it, if you haven't heard it, you're gonna think he's losing it, okay? Everybody be really quiet in the room. Those of you on Zoom, be really quiet in your house. Can you hear it? There's, there's hard rock playing right now. There's hard rock playing right now. There's country music, do you hear it? There's talk radio, political talk radio. There's Christian radio. There's some Spanish station. Oh, wait, there's a bunch of Spanish stations. Do you hear them? No, you don't hear them because you don't have a radio. But if we had a radio and I could flip the dial, you'd go, oh, he's right. Today in the news, sports, the giants. But you can't hear those things because you don't have a radio. What's your point, Joe? The Holy Spirit allows you to have a radio tuned to KGOD, right? The God station where you can now understand his word, where you read it before and you go, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. All those things are in the airwaves here, but without a radio and an antenna, you don't hear them. It's much more than that. It's a person, the Holy Spirit, but it is that as well. Um, so I believe that God makes you aware of your sin, thirsty for salvation, for freedom from drugs or alcohol or sex or whatever your brand of sin is, the stealing you've been doing at work for years or whatever it is you do, and begins to clean you up. And the second you believe, the Holy Spirit comes to be in you. But it is just like your birth. Sorry, I don't mean to point up. Your birth, where you were birthed from your mother. Yes, the water broke, all of that, but you had nothing to do with it. He made you 
born again. That's why he doesn't tell Nicodemus, this is what Nicodemus is waiting for. Give me the, the fourfold path. What do I need to do? I'll make a list. I got a pen and everything. I'm ready. You have to be born again. What? How do you do that? Has to come from above. The word, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but it's in my notes. The word for again can also mean born from above. Okay, you with me? Meaning God does it. So remember what Nicodemus said. You can't enter your mother's womb a second time, right? Verse four, you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born of water and the spirit because you're spiritually not sick, you're dead. Verse six, Jesus talking, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Do you see the difference? Flesh, a man and a woman get married. They have relations. They have a baby. They're going to make another human being period. But the spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one that gives life. Old English, it would say quickens, makes somebody alive. Why doesn't Jesus just teach Nicodemus what he needs to do? Because it's not about what he needs to do. He's going to die for the sins of the world. It'll be about believing in him. He's going to explain that next week. We'll get to it. Okay. Instead of that, he's saying, it's out of your hands. And he's going to explain it in another way. Let's see if we can get to it. We're almost out of time. Um, flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to spirit. Notice what doesn't give birth to spirit. Pastors, evangelists, you witnessing to your sister. That's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. All those things. But nobody can, if I was witnessing to Paul all this time and he finally became a Christian, I couldn't go, I made him a Christian. I would just say, God was so gracious. He used me as the Holy Spirit made him come alive in the spirit. And suddenly the lights went on. Suddenly he was tuned into KGOD and could hear things and understand things he couldn't before. Jesus talking. Verse seven, you, Mr. Nicodemus, Mr. Religious Expert, you of all people should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Analogy time. You ready? The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You say, okay, that's another non sequitur. You were talking about baseball, and then he brings up Buicks. What? The wind, what? Okay, what is it about the wind he wants us to get here? Number one, it's invisible. You have never seen the wind. None of you. I've never seen the wind. Yes, I have. No, you haven't. Wind is moving air. Air is invisible. Therefore, whether it's moving or still, you can't see the wind. And yet you all know what I mean when I say wind, because you've seen the trees and the grass blow, dust blow, right? You felt your hair blow, if, you know, if you have hair, right? Wind is invisible. Okay. Number one. Number two, no human being controls the wind. How to get more wind to your area by, don't buy the book. You can't summon the wind. You can't stop the wind. Go into a hurricane and go, I command you to, ah, and then you'll run, right? Because it ain't going to work. You can't control the wind. That's what he's saying. And that's what it is with the Holy Spirit. You came here, Nick, asking me, you want to know, what do I need to do? And I'm telling you, it's out of your control. If Nicodemus is honest and he is going to say something similar, 
he would say, oh, then you're telling me it's impossible. Yep. Give it up. You can't make yourself what God wants to make you. You need a savior. What about the wind? It blows wherever it pleases. By the way, the word for wind and the word for spirit is pneuma. It's the same word. Um, you hear its sound. You do hear the wind. You can feel it, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. That's the way it is with everyone born of the spirit. It doesn't mean that it's random. It means that it's out of your hands. It's invisible, but it's also, if you've ever been in a windstorm, remember here in Oakhurst, when was that? Three, four months ago, we had major, we had damage at our house. Um, the solar stuff and the stuff on the roof shingles in three, four places. Wind is powerful. It's out of your control. That's what he's saying. Give it up. Um, we better quit with time. Yeah, we're going to quit here. Um, and we'll pick this up next week. Sorry, we went so slow. Um, if you have questions or comments, do email me. Um, if you don't get the notes and you want them, let me know that you want them by get, sending me your email or handing it to me here in this group. Um, we're going to pick it up next week. What else do I have to tell you? Um, make sure you support your church because uh, some churches are hurting because a lot of people aren't going because of the COVID thing. And now they're in a the habit of not going. I watch it on TV and support your church. If you want to support this church, there's an offering box at the back there. Um, the money doesn't go to me. Um, certainly not. Um, or you can go to Oakhurst Evangelical Free, look it up on the internet to the website and you can give there because they're paying for this great air conditioning, which is nice and cool today, isn't it? Um, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll get out of here. Bow your heads with me, if you will, and we'll pray. Lord, we love seeing these scriptures with your authority, casting people out of the temple, cleansing the temple, hating phony worship. And so we ask that you would cleanse us, God, in our little temple that is our life. Open the doors, turn on the light, and show us what you want to change. And then by the power of your spirit, change us and make us more like your son. And then we thank you that you've caused everybody in this room, at least I believe so, and on Zoom, to be born again. And it, we feel like we came to you, and yet we're going to learn next week you made the first move, the second move, and all the moves. And all we're supposed to do is believe. And it's tough for us because we want to earn it or deserve it, God. Thank you that you loved us enough to send your son to die in our place, and that's what causes it to be possible for us to have your spirit living in us. We have to be cleansed first. Help us to keep learning and growing, God. Use us for your glory. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you all for being here. And those of you on Zoom, thank you for being here. We'll see you next week. I'm going to turn my screen off and then turn this recording off. Have a great